0: On the show today, I have Michael O'Leary. He was part of the team that founded Bain Capital's Double Impact Fund. He's been flying the flag for the evolution of finance for many years, and he's published a book. It's called Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. And that's what we're all about here on The Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Now, Michael's book manages the difficult task of talking about the new world of capitalism without being preachy. He brings together the nature and stories of the world's biggest companies and ties them to the many ways both investors and consumers are becoming increasingly empowered To influence and drive change at these companies. Anyway, we go deep on this one, so I'll leave it to Michael to explain it all. You can find a link to his book in the show notes at johntreadgold.com. And that's where you'll find the whole back catalogue of previous episodes if you want to hear from more impact leaders. And some other impact leaders you might like to hear about is RIA, that's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They have over 300 members, managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. And the largest network of people and organizations engaged in responsible, ethical, and impact investing across Australia and New Zealand. And they're great supporters of the show. Head to responsibleinvestment.org to find out more. All right, on with the show. Let's get into it. Here's my chat with Michael O'Leary. Here we go.
1: Initially, we'd wanted to write just about impact investing because that's the area we knew the best. Uh, And then we just started running into all these questions of like, how does impact investing fit in with the broader fight to reform capitalism? And how does impact investing actually affect the Fortune 500 companies that dominate our world? And and if you can't make a credible case for how impact investing changes the behavior of those big corporations, you can't make a credible case for how impact investing is going to shift kind of the contours of capitalism. And so it just had us you know, broadening and broadening the aperture of what we were focused on until we had to talk about ESG investing, we had to talk about divestment, we had to talk about corporate social responsibility, and ultimately, you know, it ended up exactly with what you described, you know, a very broad look at a lot of these subjects and trying to piece together how they, you know, how, how each of them bolsters the others and which of them, you know, which of them have a more credible theory of change than others, you know, a lot of them, things like um, divestment, you know, which I think to if you take an unnuanced view is like one of the most obvious things in the world to fight capitalism. You know, the more we dug into it, the more we realized it's like a really complicated, interesting issue where there's like reasonable minds can differ, even those who are equally um, passionate about addressing climate change.
0: Yeah, no, no, it is. It's powerful. But, you know, another element that sort of went broader about the book was how you brought the stories of, of these corporations around us. You know, you gave these companies a story, I think you painted a picture of the position they have in our society and more importantly, a way that we can influence them and be empowered to make change. Um, and as the title of your book says, make them accountable. That was my reaction. Who did you write the book for?
1: In many ways, we were writing the book for our colleagues back at being capital. You know, We were thinking there are so many books in this space that are preaching to the converted, that you know, for folks who already believe that corporations should have a deeper responsibility, who already believe that there's something wrong with capitalism, and there's kind of this raw, raw, Pollyannish, you know, we can always do well by doing good. And, and I think what we're trying to write is more for the skeptics who come into this space saying, I'm not sure if corporate social responsibility is a panacea. And I'm not sure if, uh, if divesting actually changes anything about the world or, or if impact investing is it can ever, uh, you know, earn a market rate of return. And so I think we went into this being like, if we can write a book, that that is ultimately as optimistic and idealistic as a lot of what else gets written in this space, but is um, rigorous enough that it stands up to the scrutiny of the skeptical, if not right, if not outright cynical investor sitting at a private equity firm um, who kind of you know looks looks askance at anything that smells of do-goodery. You know, we figured if we can write that sort of book, then maybe we can actually instead of just um, you know, continue to build the excitement of those who believe in this. Actually, convert some folks who might be on the edge or might not know what you know, not not know if um, you know if employee activism is such a good thing or not, and um, and it might believe without really examining their beliefs. Believe that well, you know, maybe the invisible hand is is right. Maybe we should maximize profits, and then if we want to do good, we should donate money or or we should vote. But these are very distinct pursuits. You know, it's a very pervasive view. And, uh, and I think we're, we're trying to write a book that for folks who haven't really examined it, might be convinced that there's a better way to you know, approach their economic lives.
0: So then tell me about your path to Bain Double Impact and, and what was it like working with uh, ex-governor Deval Patrick?
1: You know, both Warren, my co and I had started uh, on the private equity side at Bain Capital in, in Boston for a while in Hong Kong. And so, when the former governor Deval Patrick joined the firm in two thousand fifteen to launch our impact investing strategy, I think the, the amazing thing was to see how, within the organization, if you look from top to bottom, that that the entry level analysts, the early folks, you know, people who are of, of our generation, millennials, and younger, it was almost unanimous that they wanted to get involved in it. You know, everyone put up their hand and saying, "I want, I want to be." involved in saying the strategy and, and helping to hire the team and raising the fund and making the investments. Uh, and kind of as you went more and more senior in the firm, I think it became more of a niche interest, which, which to me says, you know, accurately reflects a little bit the generational divide on some of these issues um, that, that if you look at younger generations and ask them things like, you know, my favorite stat is do environmental and social and governance factors matter to investing? And you ask that of millennials, and it's near unanimous, nine and 10 will say, yes, of course it matters. But as you go up to Gen X, as you go up to baby boomers, uh, older generations, that the proportion that believe that ESG matters investing is smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're seeing that change, but it's still smaller. And so that's what was so exciting about joining the impact fund at Bain Capital and, and getting to s- stand up that strategy is that in some ways it's reflecting the direction that the capital markets are going. They're reflecting the direction of being capital, but also uh, all of their competitors and, and, uh, and other firms are pushing, which is this recognition that, you know, the older model of make money, uh, you know, within the bounds of the law, within the bounds of reason and ethics, and then focus on doing good through your charitable acts, through philanthropy, through voting, that kind of bifurcation of our moral and economic lives no longer applies uh, and that, that folks, especially of younger generations, but increasingly across all generations, are looking to reintegrate their moral and economic lives and, and, and do good through the core of what they do, through their occupation.
0: Yeah, and I mean, how did it fit within bain more broadly i mean you've talked about that generational divide but you know it really is quite a shift from the traditional private equity model of sort of leveraged buyouts and that sort of thing and Bain's received a bit of criticism for that in the past i mean was it uh, you know a savvy uh move to uh you know be leading in in the way that the market was going did it operate as a as an example to try and shift the rest of the organization or was it are they very much a, a wall between the two and they don't quite interact.
1: Yeah. I think one of the most amazing things about this was, was we went back as we were launching the impact fund and we looked back at being capital's portfolio and we could just show, and this was very convincing, I think for some of the, the partners who've been with the firm for a long time, we could show how some of the most successful investments in our history, uh, were investments that would have fit the impact investing mandate. Would, there were healthcare businesses that provided, better health services to more people, you know, across the income spectrum. There were early childhood development centers, you know, the things that, that women get back into the workforce after giving birth, that that provide education for, for children before they kind of enter the, the K-12 space, that we could show that a lot of these investments that had driven returns over the long term also had this deeper purpose to them other than just profit. And that it wasn't, they weren't successful, this is important, they weren't successful to uh, despite their their broader mission, their purpose, they are successful because of it. And I think w- w- when we were launching the fund, what we were trying to show is that in the broad spectrum of impact investing that goes all the way from, you know, philanthropy, things at the Gates Foundation or Midiar Network, all the way to what we were trying to do, which was, you know, drive alpha, drive market outperformance by focusing on impact, that, that the case we were trying to make was, Let's look at our own portfolio. Let's look at other private equity firms. Let's look at you know, Generation, uh, some of these other firms that, that, that were earlier adopters to the to the impact investing market or the, the ESG market, and, let, and let's show that the way to create corporate value today, the best way to, to create value as an investor or as a corporate manager is not by ignoring or putting environmental or social concerns to the side, but by bringing them directly core to corporate strategy, core to investing strategy.
0: Well, that's it, and there was a great line, there was a great section of the book that talked about how, you know, this, um, the myth of trade-offs, and the fact that of course there's trade-offs, and that, you know, valuing a company is such, you know, it's an art more than a science, and you're never going to be accurate. And in that way, measuring impact is just as difficult. But of course, that outperformance is an outcome, not a strategy. And that if you ask, you know, you ask a a coach on a sporting team, you know, what's your strategy? They're not going to say to win the most points. It's like, well, of course you are. That should go without saying. So, you know, I think that element ties in that that there's a lot of factors and that pursuing impact is just positive for the culture as a whole.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great point to bring up because I think oftentimes socially responsible business practices are held to a different standard than others. And you can actually see this in the data on, uh, on CEOs, for instance, CEOs who have outperformed on social and environmental characteristics are more likely to be fired if financial performance then takes a hit. Even if that hit is totally unrelated to ESG, there's just this sense that if someone is focusing on social or environmental impact, it must be coming at the expense, of their job, of of, uh, of serving shareholders by maximizing profits. And and similarly, you know, this question on trade-off, is there a trade-off by maximizing profits and investing in research or development? Well, there's some amount of trade-off, especially if you're thinking short-term. You know, a dollar that's spent today on, on research is a dollar that I can't issue as a dividend to my shareholders. So there is some amount of trade-off, but once you look at the long-term cost benefit. You think about, well, this is really an investment today that will pay off in the future. It starts to look a lot more like investing in your workforce or in treating the environment well or investing in your community. These sorts of things that without a doubt have costs today as all investments in business do, but they've got a payoff in the future. And I think what you're seeing now is this greater and greater recognition that there is huge positive payoff to paying attention to these sorts of impacts and negative cost. If if you ignore them, uh, and, and that is something that I think interestingly, you know, the more I got into the space, the more I realized these things aren't iron laws of physics that have always been true everywhere and forever. That you know, say treating your workforce really well will always be rewarded by the market, or the treating the environment well will always be rewarded by the market. That these things are really dependent on what people expect and what people demand of corporations. And I think today what you're seeing is employees expect to work at companies that care about them and, and will reward companies that do and punish companies that don't. And whether or not that was true in 1980 or in 1940, it, it doesn't much matter if it's true today that the way you attract and retain the best talent is by orienting your company around a deeper purpose or by treating your workforce, investing in your workforce really well. If it's true today, then that's what will create good corporate policy today.
0: Yeah, look, I'd like to wind back just a little bit to something you said when you were introducing Bain Capital and you talked about how it was the younger people in the organisation that were really engaged with it and wanted to run forward. And I think there is a certain element of, of, you know, this is a trend and this is really popular at the moment because it's sort of fresh and new in some way, it could be the shiny object. But I just wonder, you know, your view of, of how, whether the next generation really does have a new perspective and is going to shift this, or, you know, I know that when I was at university, I was pretty ideological and I had a lot of views that have, you know, they're, they're still there within me, but I'm perhaps a little bit more realistic about the realities of, of running a business. How do you see the next generation?
1: It's a good question. I mean, there's the old joke, at least in the United States, I wonder if there's a corollary in Australia of, if you're not a liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative when you're old, you don't have a head. Something like that, right? And so there is this risk. It's a good point. You know, if I just look at the static data today and say, oh, look, Gen Z and millennials care a lot about the environment and they care more than baby boomers or or Gen X. And there's this concern that everyone's trying to say, you know, look at this wave that's flowing through business and this push towards sustainability, this push towards social responsibility. But is it actually that different if, if you could show in every generation that when they were young, they cared about these issues, but as they gained economic power, they no longer cared? So it's, I think it's a reasonable concern, uh, especially for folks who are relying on these trends and in, in reorienting their business to account for them. I think two things give me, give me heart that that's not the case. The first is that you're also seeing data within generations change. And so if you, if you pull people around whether or not a uh, corporation has a social responsibility beyond making profits. And you pull people within a given generation, but you pull them five years ago and you pull them today, you can see a shift. And, and you can see that shift reflected in the way that CEOs talk about these issues. You know, whether it's the Davos Manifesto coming out of the World Economic Forum or the, the statement on corporate purpose from the business roundtable, so you're seeing CEOs, and these aren't millennial CEOs, you know, these are folks who are the at the top of their game in, in the industry, moving in this direction. And, and the other thing I would point to is, is you can look in history, uh, and you can see back how in the 1960s, the 1970s. You know, in the book, we get into some of this history. How especially in, in the 1960s and before, that it was just widely accepted that corporations had multiple stakeholder groups that they're meant to serve. Shareholders are one of them, but not the only one. And and so the job of a CEO, the job of a manager was to balance these conflicting demands from different stakeholder groups. If you ask CEOs at the time, you know, is it, is it ethical just to focus on maximizing profits for shareholders, you had almost universal agreement that, no, that would be unethical to focus on just shareholders at the expense of, of other stakeholders like employees or communities or the environment. And then you could see that shift, you know, from the 1970s when Milton Friedman was writing about the social responsibility of businesses to increase its profits through the you know the go-go greed years of, of the 80s and in the 90s, the business roundtable shifted their statement from being more stakeholder oriented to being more shareholder-oriented. And so you've seen that you've seen that shift, that's kind of this macro trend across generations down to, I don't know if you call the naders in the financial crisis that that sparked Occupy Wall Street and related movements, uh, you know, kind of the beginnings of the divest movement, but you've seen that, that turn back towards this more stakeholder-oriented approach. And that's happening across generations and, and i think that is a mega trend that is that is we're still in the early innings of we're still in the early days of seeing that push back towards a stakeholder oriented conception of capitalism
0: i think that's right and when and when you have you know you might have a listicle that says you know the the three reasons why impact investing is is the new world of finance and one of them one of them is oh, don't worry they're out there one of them is always the digital revolution Right, social media, and I think transparency, and it can be a little bit glib, can be a bit lazy, but I think that that's powerful. And obviously, I mean, even using the term millennial, millennials are getting old. Millennials are forty at some stages, right? So they're buying houses, they're having kids. So it's no longer the young generation. And you know, I think that that this digital revolution has clearly changed the world. I mean, the digital natives like you and me certainly have a different way of doing business. We have different expectations um, in terms of data and the way corporations report. And to me, that you know, you can't put that genie back in the box. Corporations are going to have to be more transparent. And as you say, accountable. And that's what you've dug into in so many different ways. Another piece there that I think was really great in the book, and I think, you know, my audience is sort of um, financially savvy, and I think they'll appreciate it. Using this term fiduciary absolutism, you know, I think people will understand the shift from shareholder primacy to stakeholder primacy. But can you explain this concept of fiduciary absolutism?
1: Yeah. Whenever I have this conversation with someone more in the financial world or the business world, one of the things they'll say is wonderful. If you're a small business owner, you own your own company and you want to do good things for the world, have at it. You, know, you want to donate some money to your local charity. That's wonderful. It's your money. You can do with it what you want. But the moment we start talking about companies who are owned by others, uh, public companies that have tens of thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of shareholders those managers are bound by what's legally known as fiduciary duty in that they are working on behalf, you know, they work on behalf of the actual owners of the company who are shareholders and therefore they are legally bound to work in their best interest. So this idea of fiduciary duty is that a CEO of a big public company can't go and, and, you know, issue him or herself a a big bonus every year if it's coming out of shareholders pockets uh, it can't be doing all these business practices that, that benefit his or her cronies, but, but uh, come at the expense of shareholders. And fiduciary duty is really meant as kind of a guardrail on corporate behavior. It's saying, within uh, the economics conception, it's, it's, you've got this principal agent problem where the principal, the person who actually owns the company, are the shareholders, and they appoint an agent, the CEO, to oversee their assets, the company. And that the, way, the, the risk is that you have sometimes divergent interests between the people who own the company, the shareholders, and the person who's actually managing the company on a day-to-day basis. And fiduciary duty is supposed to resolve this problem by saying the CEO cannot be doing, you know, the board of directors, the managers, they cannot be doing things that are not in the best interest of shareholders. And so advocates, uh, you know, the kind of more traditional-minded folks in the business world would say fiduciary duty requires – do we ignore things like social impact or, or, uh, or serving your community, because at the end of the day, you've gotta be maximizing profits for your shareholders. And what's happened over the last 50 years or so is fiduciary duty that I'm an advocate of. I mean, I think we should all be advocates of, of making sure that there's no self-dealing among the managerial class, but that fiduciary duty has kind of morphed over time from being guardrails on corporate behavior to being the sole purpose of the corporation to maximize profits for shareholders and that's where this idea of fiduciary duty has become a sort of fiduciary absolutism It's become this belief that that corporations can aspire to no greater purpose than maxing quarter to quarter earnings and that ceos can aspire to no greater purpose than doing so and, and as a result that any sort of social responsibility or any sort of environmentalism is only justified insofar as it is maximizing profits for shareholders. It only permissible, it's only permissible when it's done for, for the sake of something else, for the sake of maximizing profits. And I think you can tie a lot of what's gone wrong in the, in the corporate world back to that idea because it, it helps justify for, for our corporations and for investors, it helps justify all sorts of behavior that they would never otherwise engage in if they owned the company outright. They say, you know, I don't want to fire these workers. I don't want to you know, move all these jobs offshore. Um, I don't want to cut corners on, on preserving the environment, but I have to because that's what maximizes profits.
0: I think you know, that's a, an issue that, that my audience will understand, but and it's just a, another lens to look at it. And I think you're right that it, that it really is at the core um, and does become this crutch and that we have this distance between company executives and and shareholders who are essentially the owners. And you should have talked about how that's really the key problem is that distance. Do you think impact investing helps to solve that and bring that distance closer?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we went through and looked at, oftentimes when people try and tell the, the story of capitalism, the history of capitalism you know, they'll talk about the invention of the steam engine or the locomotive, you know, they'll look at the products being created by the companies or the technology involved. And we took a slightly different approach. We said, let's look at how ownership looks in each era of capitalism. Because if you go back to when Adam Smith was writing in 1776, when he wrote the wealth of nations, kind of this, this original tract of capitalism of the invisible hand and and a lot of the principles that, you know, folks will still ascribe to today in 1776, nearly all economic activity took place in locally owned small shops and farms. There were no big corporations. The few corporations that did exist, like the big trading companies say, Adam Smith was actually afraid we're subverting this ideal economy of, of small local artisans. And so if you go all the way back to, to the 1700s, you, know, you see there was not much distance between the person who owned a company, the person who ran the company, and then the impacts they had on, the community, on their community and their environment. You know, if, if you own a, a local store and you pollute the local river, it is your river that you're polluting. And so this, this idea of externalities does not really exist in the same way. But if you roll the clock forward, you see you know, today, my mother was a, a public school teacher her whole life. You know, she has a, a pension through uh, the Connecticut school system in the United States. The closest connection she has to any of the companies that she nominally owns shares of is through this distant, complex web of intermediaries, of pension fund managers who are investing in fund of funds advised by investment managers who are invested in hedge funds, who then invest in dozens of companies. And so the fact that her values are not expressed in the companies she owns in any way is in some ways not surprising because this distant, distant chain uh, that separates her from, from the entities that she is a very small but a real partial owner of through the shares she holds through her pension fund. Now, does impact investing solve that? In some ways, it does not. It's a traditional private equity vehicle. You know, It raises capital from limited partners, from LPs that include pension funds and endowments and other kind of institutional investors. And so in that way, it is not transforming the system Uh, in the way that say, um, you know, the local food movement does, you know, the local food movement that says, let's buy from local farmers, let's get rid of all these big global corporations. And so in that way, it's preserving the same sort of distant, intermediated financial system. But where it resolves this problem is it says, in the local business, uh, in the local small business, you are very directly attuned to the impacts you have. And if you hire a workers, those are your neighbors you're hiring or firing. And so you intrinsically care about these things. And, and in the local small business, you care about earning a profit, but you also care about you know, the impact you're having on your community, you know, what purpose your company serves beyond just, uh, just the, the pay you take home. And that's what impact investing brings into the broader financial world. as it says, yes, we're going to have this distant, deeply intermediated financial system but we're still gonna orient our corporations around a deeper purpose. And that purpose then becomes a through line all the way from my mother sitting at one end to corporations, their customers, their employees, their communities at the other. Where right now, the only through line is profit. Impact investing reintegrates this idea of of corporations having a purpose and a profit making function. Uh, and, And it brings that back into the financial system in a way that is some ways revolutionary, you know, it's a new space, it's growing, but in some ways it's very old and taking us back to this this kind of deeper, original conception of what a company is and can be.
0: Well, that's right. I think through mutual funds and, and retirement funds, you know, so many people are investors and in Australia, it's called superannuation and, and it's compulsory and a certain amount of your, your pay each month um, does go to a pension fund. And so we're all investors, but as you say that there, there is a big distance there. You do talk a lot in the book about you know, annual meetings and filing proposals and these sorts of things. They're all tools that investors have uh, to influence companies and how you can bring ownership um, and accountability closer to the companies. But I'd love to dig into these ideas of, of and the balance. Um, and, and it is a really great discussion in the book about divestment and engagement. The case of the Harvard endowment is, is a really useful example and it basically it comes down to how we can influence companies and to me that's the huge part of it you know you're involved in in private markets impact investing it's a big debate about whether you can use impact in, in the public markets and again it all just comes down to how do we influence these big companies I don't care what you call it it's like we just want to to have that influence and drive change so just to get us started do you think divestment is effective
1: that is the question that's the million dollar question that and I think what's fascinating about this debate is that if you go to a university like Harvard, and this is happening at universities across the world right now, you know, something like $12 trillion has been committed to divesting uh, from oil and gas, and, and that stood at just a few hundred billion maybe a decade ago or 15 years ago. And if you look at the, the debate that's happening at Harvard, the Harvard administration, the endowment, believes no less in climate change than the students do and is no less committed to fighting climate change and fighting for climate justice than the students are. They just have a very different theory of what role an endowment should play in that fight. So here's, let me tell you where divestment is extremely effective. Divestment is extremely effective at bringing this issue to the fore. Because what you have is you've got this big public debate happening at an extremely high profile university where the university is saying, no, we won't divest from oil and gas. The students are saying, "Yes, you must divest from oil and gas." And the longer this debate drags on, the more it is salient in students' minds, in alumni minds, in the public's mind, about what role endowments, what role corporations, what role we should all be playing in this broader fight for climate justice. And so, it's effective at bringing this issue to the fore. It's effective, you know. I think oftentimes we take um, we take people's ethical views as given in this world. But oftentimes, it's, it's protests that then inform those views. So the example I always think of is, is around fur, say. That there was probably a long time where people just did not think about whether or not they wore fur as an ethical choice. But through PETA, through activists, through certain nonprofit organizations, they brought this issue forward. And probably a lot of people who had just not really considered it before suddenly, had an informed moral ethical view that it was wrong to wear fur, and the same thing is happening here. Where because of this debate, it's changing minds uh, around climate regulation, uh, kind of around the cultural sentiment. You know, and, and if you talk to the divest protesters today, that's the case they'll make on why divestment is effective. You know, in the financial world, people talk a lot about things like cost of capital, of of you know, if we starve companies like Chevron or Exxon Mobil where we don't, you know, more and more investors refuse to hold their stock, will the cost to them of borrowing debt or of raising equity, will the cost become higher and higher and effectively will starve them of capital, uh, you know, making it harder for them to build their businesses. And, and that theory that you come across a lot in the academic literature and financial circles, that theory is, is pretty tenuous. It's hard to find evidence for. And when you talk to divest protesters, it's not the one they cite, because that's a kind of an academic debate that's hard to stand on, whereas these kind of cultural shifts is much stronger. So I'd say, is divestment effective? Divestment is very effective on these kind of broader cultural movements. There is a risk to it, though. And and this is what I spend a lot of time focusing on uh, in the investing world now. The risk is that if every investor who cares about climate change divests from oil and gas companies, then those oil and gas companies will continue to be owned by shareholders. Just those shareholders will be the ones that don't care about climate change. And whenever you think of companies like Chevron or BP or Exxon Mobil, I don't think the answer is less oversight by less morally driven investors. And so for me, I think a big part of the cost of divestment is that you will see even today there will be shareholder proposals at oil and gas companies that are voted on by shareholders Uh, that that are on issues like, should they create a climate action plan or should they disclose their carbon emissions? And year after year, these proposals will fail because all the investors that would support them have divested on principle. And this is the, the risk, the cost of divestment.
0: I want to get onto engagement, but I want to stick to that. That example you mentioned about fur. And I think this comes back to one of the core issues here is that we are talking about oil and gas, and this is something that has no substitute. You know, in an economic perspective, if you choose not to wear fur, you can wear a woolen coat and it's still pretty warm. But, you know, I think that there's this cognitive dissonance. I'm not sure if that's the right word for it. But this idea of, you know, even the divest Harvard protesters are saying, you know, we want you out of oil and gas. But, you know, I, I would assume that they're they're driving cars that burn fuel they're flying in planes um, and, and maybe, you know, their, their houses are heated by gas. So, and, and that's hard to avoid. And, you know, there is a big debate in, in our sort of community about are we being hypocritical when we want to divest from a business on one hand, we're talking about divesting from a business on one hand, but we're customers on the other. And that in the end, the reason that ExxonMobil will remain, even if it's divested by an ethical minority, is that we're all gonna still buy its products how do you balance that one? I don't want to get too sidetracked because that's more of a, a philosophical issue, but I think it's one that, that's really important. Yeah.
1: No, it's a fascinating debate. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're staying on this for a minute Is there is a big difference between uh, boycotting a product and divesting from a stock is if you boycott a product, say boycotting fur or uh, boycotting a certain a brand that, that has had social environmental trouble, If you boycott a product, you're exerting immediate financial pressure on that company in the form of reduced sales. And this is you're talking about kind of digital natives, uh, you know, the way that, that computers and the Internet have changed. This is an area that is, I think, a lot of brands have become much more attuned to because they've seen the power of once a consumer movement gets going against or for a given brand, through Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and TikTok and otherwise, it can take off and exert huge pressure on a company, uh, huge immediate financial pressure on a company. And the reason is if I don't, you know, exactly what you said, there's substitutes. If I don't shop at uh, one store, I'm going to shop somewhere else. And this is where divestment becomes tricky because if I refuse to hold shares in an oil company, and so therefore, go to my portfolio manager, go to my broker, go to my, uh, uh, my investment fund and decide to sell that stock. Someone else has to stand on the other side of that transaction and buy it. And so the immediate pressure on the company doesn't exist. All that has happened is if they were to look at their cap table, if they were to look at all the people who owned their shares. There used to be Michael O'Leary, and now there's someone else. And, and in fact, you know, the more and more people who care about climate change do that, the, the, they are just being replaced by others who care less about climate change. And, and so you know, where boycotts can be very effective because they exert immediate financial pressure on a company, divestment has to, has to subscribe to these broader theories of change. And if you do, then I think you know, this charge of hypocrisy, which is, is real, and, and I think you know, they wouldn't deny that they still rely on oil and gas, though I think they'd also say they're fighting in every aspect of their lives to, to use less and to, and to fight for sustainability and they're devoting their careers to it. And so um, you know, to say that like, we can't get away from it entirely does not mean we should not try. Uh, but, but I think they would say that you know, divestment is has to be part of this broader cultural change and the fact that I still have to fill up my car with gasoline is an unfortunate fact about the universe, but does not change... That, that I should be fighting every day to be laying the groundwork for a global carbon tax or laying the groundwork to make it uh, morally noxious to ever work for an oil company. And divestment is a tool you can use to do that.
0: Well, that's right. And I think that that's a core part of it. I mean, would it perhaps be more effective for the divest Harvard cohort to be lobbying, you know, government for a carbon tax? You know, I think regulation is a part of it that, we often don't talk about business say regulations inefficient, um, and I think impact investing in some ways is sort of along that rhetoric, and that regulation is sort of seen as this negative that we can do it a different way. That might be a bit um, over the top, but where does regulation fit here? You know, should those kids be pushing for for a carbon tax with much more energy than worrying about that? You know, I mean they should be doing both, right? Because if they're lobbying for a carbon tax, they're then coming to Harvard and saying a very um, pragmatic business approach saying, hey, hey, we're going to have these guys regulated in 10 years. So you should get out because it's just a bad play.
1: Without a doubt, they are fighting hard for the government changes and they see their movement, the divestment movement, as part of that push that will lay the cultural groundwork, the, the public sentiment that will create the dynamics that allow for something like a carbon tax. And so um, and so, I think you know, they would feel very strongly that that what they're advocating for is leading the way for government, for for what is really a government solution to this problem. Um, But but in the impact investing world, you know, in the corporate social responsibility world, this comes up again and again and again is where does the line of government stop and the line of, you know, the public, um, uh, the private sector begin? And, And to that, you know, we in the book, we've got a whole chapter on on government, and, and there are many, many great books out there that are, that are trying to you know, ascribe a better role for, for government and financial market regulation and otherwise. I think there are real areas um, that the government you know, should be more involved. Uh, but one thing we try and show is, is you know, the extent of what we want in the world. You know, we want corporations, we want investors uh, to, be, to be more responsible, to, to take responsibility for the impacts they have in the world. That you know, there are things government can do to increase exposure. Say to require different reporting, um, to set you know the uh, to set the ground rules, but there is this risk that the further government encroaches, the more they justify this view that a corporation's responsibility is to abide by the law, but no more. You know, so if government says you have to pay a $15 minimum wage. That's a big issue in the United States right now. Every company has to pay a $15 minimum wage. That one—that might be the right policy solution. I'm not arguing against it. But one side effect of the government doing that is all these advocates right now within the corporate world who are saying it makes business sense, it's the right thing to do, it's the best way to invest in our workers, that it, it kind of undercuts that strain and instead pushes this, this rival mindset of, we should maximize profits, and if, and if there's something that we're doing that's bad for the world or bad for society, the government will set a law to make sure we don't do it. But otherwise, we should do everything within the bounds of the law to maximize profits. And I think, you, obviously, you need some, some combination of both. You need you know, better government regulation in some areas. You need better private sector participation in others. But one thing that we want to advocate so much for in this book is this idea that corporate leaders, investors, do have responsibilities that extend well beyond the law, um, and and that they can be rewarded for, for doing that because that's the right thing to do and that's what employees and customers otherwise are expecting. Uh, but it can't just be a government solution and, and private sector uh, left to run roughshod over the world as long as it's staying within the letter of the law.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a minimum wage, right? And so it's not a question of should we remove the minimum wage at all and just let ethics run it. And obviously in the US, it's quite low. And then pushing up to $15 would, you know, that's just an increase. Right. And so, you know, I do see that that regulatory enforcement is vital. So then with the issue of oil and let's, you know, take it a bit more personally, you know, I mean, I drive a car and I do have that guilt about it. And in the end, we talk about all of these problems of capitalism. We talk about financial structures, but in the end, you and I are still kind of a little bit lazy and we still jump in our car, <laughs> right? You know, where do you think about that? That sort of just very personal element of, of human nature.
1: We spent a lot of time for, for the book, you know, we ultimately, you know, we're writing this to try and get people to change behavior. You know, any, any work of, you know, nonfiction in this space, ultimately should be trying to change something about the world. And so we spent a lot of time debating what should people be doing instead? What should we be doing differently than we're currently doing? And we came to this realization that no amount of backyard composting, no amount of non-GMO corn chips, you know, no amount of uh, LED light bulbs is going to fix what's broken about capitalism that these are all these very small, very salient features of what we do every day uh, that you know, some might say is just virtue signaling or, or, or we might truly be trying to make a difference. But ultimately, you know, we looked at the personal expenditure surveys in the US. You know, what do people actually spend money on every year? And you can see that actually there are a few big things we spend money on each year And that if we just focus on three or four big decisions, you can kind of let people off the hook for the rest. Because the answer here cannot be that every time I go to the grocery store, I'm like tearing my hair out trying to figure out what the right, you know, kombucha brand is that's better for the world than the one next to it. But there are certain decisions we make, economic decisions we make, that do make a difference, especially in conjunction with others. The biggest one, by the way, is not something we buy, but what we sell, which is our labor. You know, the biggest economic decision we make every year, or every couple of years, is what we choose to do with our careers. And for many people, you know, admittedly, they don't have much option. They're probably trying to put food on the table. You know, maybe there's not many employers in their town. Totally fine. But for those of us who are lucky enough to have a choice of who we work for, what sort of jobs we have, what sort of careers we pursue, that's the most important economic decision we'll ever make in terms of what impact we'll end up having through our lives. Another big one, you know, for those who have savings is, Related to what investment funds you're invested, what investment manager you're with, what mandate you're giving them on on how your shares we voted, and and you're seeing right now it's still the early days where you're seeing a huge amount of growth in you know what's known as ESG investing, you know billions and billions of dollars of inflows out of uh, outflows out of traditional funds and into you know, environmentally or socially oriented funds, and I think that that's a big decision you make as well, and one you don't make every day, you know you make once a year or less um, uh, on kind of big decisions like that. And then on the consumer side, you know, for better or for worse, your car, how you get to work, is actually a pretty big source of your impact. Maybe the one bigger than that is, uh, is where you choose to live. You know, in, in the US right now, we're seeing a lot of horrible uh, wildfires, we're seeing a lot of horrible droughts. You know, if you think about the decisions someone makes on what part of the US to live in, that actually has a huge impact on, on uh, what their environmental footprint will be. Because there are parts of the country that are powered by coal. You know, where, when you plug in, if you have a Tesla in West Virginia, that is a coal powered car because the way you charge that battery is are plug into the wall that is, that is getting its power for burning coal. If you have that same Tesla in Washington state up in the Northwest, it's powered by water, where, where most of their electricity generation comes from dams. Um, and the same thing goes for, you know, how energy efficient your house is. or generally, if you're living in, you know, dense urban living, you kind of have a much lower environmental footprint than if you've got a big lawn, you're watering every day in a drought prone area. But these are decisions that, you know, if you're worried about your own environmental footprint, make a difference, but they're not decisions you're making every single day, every time you walk down the supermarket aisle. So what we advocate for is you don't need to be perfect. No one's gonna be perfect, but given your decision set, along with things like cost and quality and convenience and all the things that we use to dictate the way you make decisions, just include values. And don't don't make that the overriding decision so that you know every single time you go to the store, that has to be the only thing you abide by. But for these big decisions that matter, make sure that that is a part of the conversation because all this goes to this idea that you, know, you can't bifurcate your economic and moral life. They should be reunited. And, and when we make our economic decisions, we need to make sure we're giving at least some weight to our our moral beliefs that are otherwise governing our our political decisions, our philanthropic decisions.
0: All right. Well, let's roll back to engagement. We talked about divestment as a tool, engagement is uh, sort of in parallel with that. And uh, you you talked about BlackRock and Vanguard as an example, the huge passive investors um, and how they actually very rarely file proposals for annual meetings, and they rarely have face-to-face meetings, that they're passive, as, as it says in the tin. Using this as an, ex- as an example to talk about engagement, is this sort of a, a hidden cost to the economies of scale coming out of you know, this big um, push towards passive funds?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, there's something beautiful about the corporate democracy where shareholders elect a board of directors, the board of directors appoints a CEO, and the CEO runs the company. And so, if a corporation has you know, strayed from the values of the underlying shareholders, you should expect that the shareholders will exert pressure on the board either by nominating different board members or by filing specific proposals around certain social and environmental issues, to push the company back in line with the interests and the values of the underlying shareholders. And if the system of corporate democracy worked perfectly, I think that's what you'd see in every company, just as that's what you see in a small business, you know, with a small business owner doing that just kind of automatically, intuitively. The problem though, is that that entire system has broken down in the face of some of these big institutional investors, you mentioned like BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street or Fidelity, some of these massive asset managers. And so now you have these scenarios where if you go out and you pull American shareholders, you pull Americans more broadly, you know, are you outraged by executive compensation packages? that huge majorities will say yes it's crazy that we pay executives so much more than the median workers that you know maybe a ratio of 20 to 1 or 100 to 1 makes sense but 300 to 1 is, is outrageous and yet in the united states at least shareholders every year get to vote on the executive compensation packages of, of CEOs and bizarrely given that most americans you know, are are outraged by this those shareholder proposal those 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 shareholder votes 98% of the time will approve the CEO executive compensation package. And they'll usually approve it with something like 90% support. And the same thing with climate. So coming back to BlackRock and Vanguard and the climate debate, Larry Fink, the, the head of BlackRock, will write these wonderful letters about the purpose of a corporation, about the importance of sustainability. You know, it's, it's all this rhetoric that I truly do believe in, and I think he's been a great leader. But if you look at the voting record of BlackRock or Vanguard on, on a climate-related proposals they have failed to support 88 out of the last 90 shareholder proposals related to climate change. And so I think what's broken down here is that the values of the end investor, the the mom and pop investor are not being expressed in our corporations because that signal is being lost in our financial system. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of great academic research on why is it that big ass managers like BlackRock and Vanguard are so, so passive, you know, are so unengaged. And I think you're seeing a movement towards engagement you know, just in their public pronouncements, uh, in their actions. You're seeing them kind of wake up a little bit on this issue. But they've still been, I mean, you can see it in the voting records, they've still been so passive and so hesitant. And I think a big part of it is if you, if you manage $5, 6000000000000 trillion of assets the way some of these players do, you represent people of every political stripe, of every set of values. And so even on these ones where there seems like there's real consensus. I think they're just very hesitant to get out there and they're very worried about being seen as political. You know, they don't want to see seen as politicizing business in some way. And, and so they've been very hesitant to do anything beyond something like board diversity. You know, it's a relatively apolitical issue, an important one, but a pretty apolitical one. Um, and as a result, they've just, they've not really been leaders the way you'd hope or expect them to be
0: when I first read the title of your book, Accountability, that was the issue that jumped to mind. And, and obviously you talked about it in the book and, and, you know, I think that there's there's lots of depth to it. So then as we've talked about this issue of influence um, and it's the individuals in their pension fund and, and people who buy into an ETF, they're the final owners, but obviously the Black Rocks of the world manage their proxy vote on their behalf. We'd hope that they'd do it with a, a pragmatic and principled view, sort of balanced for the good of you know being a long-term investor but perhaps they just have too many and board diversity and and CEO remuneration don't quite fit in there have you got any views of how individuals maybe it already is happening i mean certainly in australia in in superannuation people in relation to the bushfires and and climate change have decided to, you know, make a a different decision about their superannuation and who's investing it for them. Are you seeing this change? You know, is there a way to make individuals more empowered and to exert their accountability, the accountability of, of these, uh, these asset managers?
1: Absolutely. But fair warning, it's, it's frustratingly early days on some of this stuff. And so, you know, I think something like uh, expressing your values through, what products you buy, that idea has been around for much longer. And as a result, you see things like fair trade certified or, or, you know, non-GMO, or you go to the store and you want to buy eggs you can have, you know, free range eggs, grass fed chickens, you know, all of this. And, and so, you know, you have all these options. And so I think that's a very clear area where you know, we've now had decades of development to provide options to consumers to express their values or not as they want and see fit that this is very, very early for uh, employee activism and investor activism, or in other words, in, in how employees or investors can bring their values to those economic transactions. Uh, and so you know, the, the area you brought up on the investor side, you know, I get frustrated because I look at this world and I see all of these ESG ETFs have now been launched. And in many ways, it's you know, this is great. This is so exciting. You've got you know, hundreds of billions of dollars flowing into this. But you also end up with these bizarre circumstances where you know, there was a gender empowerment ETF that was put out by State Street that tried to track you know, companies that had the most women in leadership positions, something like that. And so if you if this is an area that you really care about, women in business, gender equality, uh, you know, this would be naturally a fund you'd think that would represent your values and you could support and, and you could invest in. But coming back to this question on engagement, if you looked at the way that that fund voted on gender issues, you know, someone, some shareholder will put in a proposal saying, you know, I think that Goldman Sachs or some other company should report on its gender pay ratios. What's the ratio of male pay to female pay that this gender empowerment ETF actually voted against those sorts of proposals and it voted against them because voting is done centrally at state street. They don't think about doing this at a fund by fund level, but if you're just a, you know, retail investor out there who had bought this ETF, it's kind of shocking and maybe horrifying to know that the exact thing that you thought you were supporting, your money was actually being used to vote against. And to me, look, like this is not to cast aspersions on that ETF. I think it's doing important things. It's a good 1.0 product, but it just shows that we're still early in figuring out what sorts of products do people actually want? What? How, how can we bring our values into investing, both at you know, institutional level and a retail level because that's an important distinction here too you know you and I big uh, you know followers of the impact investing world work in the impact investing world if you want to invest in an impact fund you better be a ultra high net worth individual or have your own family office or, or work in an endowment or a foundation because there's no impact investing funds that you know a random uh, a retail investor can go put $10,000 of their 401k into or their, of their retirement account into. Uh, and so that's another area we're going to see a lot more development is, is creating products that were available as a mutual fund or as an ETF or, or, or you know other kind of securities that anyone can invest in that allow them to align their values. It's early days. It's early days. I think we're going to see a ton of product proliferation, a ton of development over the next decade.
0: Mm. And and in the book, you made a distinction between that kind of light touch engagement, but then you talked about the example of Jana and the Californian Pension Fund when they approached Apple and they did have a big impact and you called that impact investing within public markets. You sort of said it went beyond engagement. How do you see that um, distinction?
1: This is actually a fascinating area of development because for decades, there's been this worry that what are known as hedge fund activists were this malicious force within capitalism, that there are these hedge funds that would raise capital. They'd go, they'd buy up, you know, two, three, five, 10% of a company and then force the company to do all these things that are good for shareholders and bad for stakeholders. Things like breaking up the company or forcing a sale or forcing it to, to distribute its cash to shareholders. And, And what you're seeing now is you're seeing those same sets of tools of, of building up a stake in a company and exerting a lot of pressure as a shareholder with other shareholders to force the company to change. But you're seeing them applied not to issues related to you know, maximizing profits today, but to things that are more typically associated with impact investors, things like serving your workers or serving communities or improving the environment. And that's what happened with Jana at, uh, at Apple, where they had partnered up with CalSers, which is a big uh, pension system in California, represents California teachers, and they put pressure on Apple to to be better about the the health uh, for adolescent use of the iPhone, and it helped lead to a lot of the parental settings, um, uh, screen time apps that we now have on on almost all smartphones today, And, and what they had done was they built up a stake, they shined a huge spotlight on this issue, and Apple was like, oh, of course we care about this issue. You know, Apple is not taking the other side and saying, oh, we don't care about adolescent use of cell phones. We don't care about the effect it has on their brains. And so within a few days, they totally capitulated and totally come around to to supporting exactly what Jana had suggested. And I think you're seeing more and more of, of that, of not just voting in line with certain issues, as important as that is, but of going in and using every power you have as a shareholder to push corporations to change because that's you see something you know there's a whole chapter on the newspaper industry and when newspapers are, are a threat of going bankrupt or of, of laying off staff you'll see people protest in the streets you'll see politicians making statements on twitter and on the floor of the senate and yet you know i went to the shareholder meeting of the company the newspaper company in question and no shareholders even referenced it, you know, no one stood up and, and was and giving voice that movement. And I think you're going to see more and more movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, or, or the fight for the $15 minimum wage. I think more and more, you're going to see those movements having a voice in the shareholder base.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. And at the moment, there's a big Australian miner called Rio Tinto that's going through a a scandal of its own, and it really does come down to accountability. I mean, the iron ore miners, they blow things up, um, but they blow up a a Ducan Gorge, which is a... um, has a uh, heavy significance to the traditional owners. There are artifacts and, and human um, habitation examples that go back 40,000 years, right? And uh, they did have a relationship with the traditional owners, but still it got destroyed. And I think in the past, it might have, you know there would have been a bit of media but it would have faded away but it's been the institutional investors that have have not let it go and they've pushed and pushed and and it's look there are now calls for the for the ceo to resign or the board to sack them and you know it's become a major issue and and that certainly you know i imagine at their agm that will be a big issue um and and people are really asking that question so you know there are some big changes happening
1: it's such a great example and you might say that you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, would that have become such an issue? I think you're, I think you're right um, that that business practices that you might have been able to get away with in a different period, you cannot get away with anymore because people are expecting something different of business, and those views are now being expressed in a stronger way, including at the one group of people who can better hold uh, boards and CEOs to account than any other, and that's shareholders.
0: Well, and, that's it. and we're, trying to, we're trying to drive change. And if, if a CEO has a fear that they're going to get sacked, that's pretty powerful.
1: I couldn't agree more. It's also tremendously short-sighted, I think. You know, if you look at the cigarette industry, you know, a lot of folks will say, you know, cigarettes, you know, they, they, they tried to muddy the science for so long, but they still made such profits. You know, it wasn't that in hindsight, you know, doing the wrong thing. They sure made a lot of money. But if you take the longer term views, you know, cigarette companies now today, I think cigarette use, you know, number of cigarettes sold peaked in like 1982, right? So it's, it's a tremendous fall down. And today they're recognized recognizing they see the writing on the wall. And so they're trying to develop all these healthier alternatives. But because they had done all these actions that, that purposefully misconstrued or muddied the science on, on the health impacts of cigarettes, that now as they're trying to release these, you know, better for you products, better for you nicotine products, organizations like the World Health Organization, the WHO, will say, we will refuse to even read anything the tobacco industry puts out because they have zero trust with regulators, zero trust with governments or any of their stakeholders. you would say, would it have been a better strategy for someone like a cigarette company or, or a company like Rio Tinto or an oil and gas company, if, if you're truly thinking about the long, long term, you know, not, not the one year, three year, but the 10, 50, 100 year horizon for your company, there is no profitable strategy that enjoys destroying value for your stakeholders. That, it, that involves you know, making your customers uh, sick uh, or destroying the environment, contributing to catastrophic climate change, other weather events. As you say, if, if, they, if Rio Tinto were truly long-term profit-oriented, you know, forget about doing the right thing, forget about ethics. But we're truly trying to just create a company that was going to create value for shareholders over the long, long term. You look at an action like this, and you'd say it was it was so short term meat headed, ignoring the the obvious reality today that the way you create value for shareholders is by focusing first and foremost on your stakeholders.
0: Well, that's right. And they've certainly got short term thinking because, uh, you know, the history stretches back 40,000 years. And, and that really is just uh, just dismissing so much cultural heritage um and and really hard to fathom but is a perfect example of the problems that there are you know taking a lot of your time today i really do appreciate it we do need to talk about impact measurement but let's keep it a little bit progressive my Previous guest to yourself was Sir Ronnie Cohen. He's a, an elder statesman of impact investment and, and a pioneer. And he's working with Harvard Business School. And they're talking all about impact-weighted accounts. I'd love to, um, to get your view on this.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Here's the problem with ESG investing today. Many problems, many of which we've already discussed. But here's, here's one of the core problems, which is if you go and you look at, say, the credit ratings for a company, and you pull the credit ratings, of how credit worthy, how likely is this company going to re, uh, be to repay its debt? And you look at ratings from several different agencies, you know, Moody's and Standard Poor's, the, the correlation between those credit ratings will be almost perfect, almost one-to-one. If you look at ESG ratings, there's almost no correlation between the ESG ratings provided by different providers. That the underlying data, the underlying ESG data that's reported on right now, it's, it's spotty, it's self-reported, there's no agreement on what matters. And, and I think this is, might be worst of all, it's mostly just focused on what's happening within the four walls of a company with very little interest uh, on the impact that the company actually has on end consumers or on communities. And so, for example, a company might say for their ESG disclosures that they have a diversity policy. Great. But they won't then report on what the actual diversity is of their workforce, or a company might talk about how you know, we're releasing all these new, better for you, healthy food brands without actually talking about, well, what is the impact on our, on our customers of all the products we're already selling? And so this is where I think the impact investing world is bringing a lot, and, and through the impact weighted accounts initiative, is bringing a lot to the public markets, which is by saying, let's focus on the actual impact this company has in people's lives and in the environment, in the communities. And if we can go through and monetize these impacts, put a dollar value on the carbon that companies are emitting into the atmosphere, for example, or the wages above a living wage they're paying to workers, if you can put a dollar uh, value on that, then we can start integrating that more into financial statements, into the decisions that companies are making, and we can get a better view of the actual impact companies are having in the world. Because ultimately, I don't much care whether a company is a rated on, by the MSCI, ESG ratings. I don't much care if they've got diversity policies or, or carbon disclosure policies. I care about the actual impact they're having on the world. And, and very few people are, are, are measuring that right now. And that's what I think is the exciting work that the Impact Rated Accounts Initiative is doing. The Value Balancing Alliance in, in Europe is, is undergoing a similar process. You've seen some companies like Puma uh, issue environmentally adjusted profit and loss statements. Uh, You're seeing accounting firms like PWC, one of the big accounting firms in the world, they've got something they call total impact measurement and management, which is a similar framework trying to monetize impact to lead to better business decisions. I think this is the direction the ESG measurement is going because it focuses on what we actually care about, not these interim steps of do you have the right policies in place, but are you actually having a positive impact on people and planet?
0: Mm, I mean, we wouldn't trust Goldman Sachs to offer their own financial accounts. So why do we trust these big companies to, um, to report their own impact accounts, which essentially we are doing?
1: It, it is a great point. And you go back to the history before the Great Depression, we did trust companies like Goldman Sachs to report on their financial accounts. And there'd be companies that would, you know, their, their, their report to shareholders would be something like, we had $10 million of revenue this year. For more information, come visit our offices in Wisconsin. No, and it wasn't until the Great Depression, through that crisis, that industry and government came together and set up this alphabet soup of accountability. They set up the, these accounting, they set up FASB, they set up uh, you know, all the different accounting standards, all the accounting firms that then have to audit these financial statements. And so we went through this process of standardization, of making these sorts of metrics mandatory and audited. And I think we're just now at the beginning of starting to see that on the ESG investing side for the exact reasons that you laid out that self reporting. Uh, you know, everyone having their own measures, getting to decide how they present the data, what data to present, it's untenable, especially as investors realize and recognize that these sorts of variables, these sorts of metrics are critically important to making investing decisions and and are required no less than understanding what a company's gross margins are or net revenue is.
0: They said we're just at the beginning and and I'd love to get your view as someone, you know, with experience in this sector and, and of course being realists, Ronnie Cohen, Harvard Business School. These are real pragmatic groups and certainly not niche. This topic is being talked about. You know, I think it's got a lot of um, power. There is a big gap that needs to be bridged between the nature of our regulators and, and policy um, and this concept of, of sort of, you know, mandating having an impact weighted account. So what sort of time scales are you seeing? You know, you, you know, this definitely will take, you know, be sort of the snowball rolling, but yeah, how optimistic are you?
1: Medium term, I'm actually pretty pessimistic. I think we're due for a splash of cold water. Um, and I think one of the big reasons is that people look at this pretty skeptically deep down, I think. People are a little skeptical when some company uh, issues, you know, Goldman Sachs, will we'll go back to them, you know, they issue a shareholder report. They also issue a report for stakeholders, you know, kind of a corporate social responsibility report, two separate reports. They talk about different things in each, um, and I think people look at that a little cynically, and they say, "You know, how much does Goldman Sachs really care about me?" Um, and 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 it's on Goldman Sachs, it's on all companies to prove that what they're doing is is you know meaningful and authentic and substantive and and comes from the right place. I think I think what we're going to see in the next couple years is first some of this cynicism and skepticism, skepticism become manifest. That just as right now everyone is very exuberantly talking about how ESG funds are outperforming. I think the moment that performance turns, which, which, you know, ultimately it will as all markets go through booms and busts and, and ESG underperforms, you know, broader market benchmarks that you'll see a bunch of people saying, Oh, see, you know, it was, you it always did come at a cost. There always was a trade-off. And, and I think you're going to see some pushback against it, you know, and some views of, of, you know, all these ESG funds that are being launched that people are going to, at first, they're really excited about it, and then they're going to dig into it, and they're going to say, what about the world is different? You know, we now have $90 trillion have committed to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment. $90 trillion is such an unfathomable sum of money. How is it that we've not yet fixed capitalism with that much money committed to responsible investing? You know, and, and the answer is that a lot of this is people have made commitments. They, they say, you know, we care about stakeholders but it's not yet being followed through with enough substantive action. And that's where accountability comes in. Because if right now nine out of 10 CEOs will tell you, you know, we think serving stakeholders beyond shareholders is important, is important. Almost hundred percent of those same CEOs will also say, and we're satisfied with the job we're already doing to serve stakeholders. And the gap there is accountability. We, we need better mechanisms, more actions like the institutional investors at Rio Tinto coming forward and saying, it's all well and good that, that you're saying the right things, but it's time that you start doing them too.
0: Mm, well, look, that's a great dose of realism. But I think I think there is optimism there that that as always we need to look to the long term. Um, and this is a you know gonna be a long-term process and we just need to stick with it.
1: Well, and that's it. And it's, you know, if i if I think medium term we're due for a splash of cold water. Long term, I think this is a trend that's only growing stronger. And you know, you were talking earlier about millennials aren't that young anymore. You know, millennials are buying houses. If you look at the financial markets, though, millennials still lack. You know, if the, of all mutual fund assets, millennials own something like 9%. Millennials and Gen Z together own something like 9%. But that number is going to grow. In a decade, it'll be 25. In two decades, it'll be 50%. And so I think these views that we're talking about, you know, these principles, this sense of, of one, accountability in companies to be serving stakeholders, we focus on the impact, the way that that George Seraphim and, and Serana Cohen are measuring the impact-weighted accounts initiative – This is only getting stronger and stronger and stronger. This is a macro trend that's not going away. So I agree. Long term, I'm optimistic. If if medium term, I'm I'm bracing myself for a splash of cold water as you know the skeptics start to start to rear their heads. Long term, I think this direction, this this movement is only going in one direction.
0: Good stuff. Great to hear. Well, look, I've taken plenty of your time today. Really do appreciate it. But before I let you go, um, I was hoping you could give us a book recommendation. Of course, yours is titled Accountability: The Rise of Citizen. Capitalism. Your co-author is Warren Voldmanis. But yeah, any other books that you can recommend for my audience if you know fiction, nonfiction, whatever's on the side table, perhaps?
1: Wow, for this one, maybe one of my biggest influences here uh, in, in writing this book and my views of of what corporations are are capable of is a is a legal scholar who who sadly died when she was uh, still kind of in the private career, Lynn Stout in the U.S., who wrote a book called "The Myth of Shareholder Value," that I think does as good a job as any in painting what has gone wrong with corporations that, that they've gone from what originally had a very deep social purpose uh, to, to ultimately you know, serving only what we call fiduciary absolutism to only serving quarterly profits, uh, but also painting a, a, a path forward to what can create corporations that are accountable to deeper purpose. So I'll say the, the myth of shareholder value Lynn Stout.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. Thank you. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can follow it up. But look, thank you for today. Really appreciate all of that. I could have kept going. We had lots of tangents and I could have easily kept digging into it all. I'm I'm so uh, sort of intellectually interested in all of these and digging into the personal side of things. But um, yeah, I think we went pretty far. Thank you.
1: I appreciate it, John. Thank you.
0: Good stuff. All the best.